Welcome to the podcast for Resurrection Lutheran Church in Fredericksburg, Texas. I'm Pastor Garrett Buvinghausen. This is a bit of a bonus episode for our podcast. We are, uh, long story short, um, this is uh, the morning class on uh, February the 8th, um, where we had to play a little bit of catch up because the first class we had that uh, we only got through chapter one. And um, I usually try and post just the audio for um, the ones that, you know, are probably the best with the best questions, discussions. You know, sometimes I'm more on point than on others. But uh, this one is a little bit different. We had to catch up a little bit. Um, It's not the main episode for Chapter 3 like I've already posted before. This is just a little bit of bonus material where we do cover uh, some previous things and and some things we've already you know touched on with chapters you know two and three and whatever and the reason why I'm including this though is that there's just a lot of good discussion in this one and I wanted to include it for anybody who was interested and who would be edified by it so um with that uh you know this might be one of the last uh well I don't know if it's the last of anything as far as intros and what I do for the podcast for the church uh, because usually what I'm doing now, instead of having a setup and doing post-production, uh, whatever on the episodes, I usually just set up a voice recorder in the classroom and it picks up the sound really well. And I'm just, it's a lot easier for my time as a pastor to just post these things, um, directly the MP3, uh, directly onto the podcast and just let you, let you enjoy it. You know, uh, no real, you know, bump music or introductions or anything like that. But, um, so, you know, usually I don't do these intros, but for this bonus one, I figured I'd let you know exactly, you know, roughly what was going on. Uh, so without further ado, for your listening pleasure, uh, hopefully, <laughs> here is, uh, our Tuesday morning Bible class, uh, or Concord class discussion on chapters two and three in the book, Has American Christianity Failed? by Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. Hope you enjoy. And God bless. Thanks. All right, well. All the years of Bible study, I've asked a lot of stupid questions. Nobody's ever given Nobody's kicked me out yet. No question is stupid. Well, for our. Oh, yeah, there is. Right. For our opening prayer, we're actually going to pray for. Madison, Dax, and Marlo, the Shades. Granddaughter and great grandsons, right? Who all all have COVID right now. So pray for them. Okay. So let us pray. Um, excuse me. Heavenly Father, ruler of all things, your Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, healed all manner of infirmities and cured all manner of diseases. Um, Mercifully help your servants, Madison, Dax, and Marlo, in body and soul. And if it be your will, free them from their sickness, that restored to health they may, with thankful hearts, Bless your holy name. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Okay. Um, 
We are in chapters, so, so last week we only got through chapter one because I, I don't know, got long-winded, um, and also because really since having COVID, it's been really strange. Um, I get, I get like brain, brain fog from time to time, and um, I'll, I've, all that, all day that day, it was a busy day, I, you know, I get, I get brain fog and fatigue, and sometimes I just kind of lose track of something and uh, I, I don't really hear things as well as I should or something like that. So it's, it's really strange. COVID is a weird thing that has a lot of lingering side effects. So um, we, we are trying to get through chapter two and three today uh, in, Ameri- in has, has American Christianity Failed? Um, and uh, that way we'll get all caught up because last Tuesday night we actually got through chapters one and two. We're just a little behind, but you know what? We can go through this uh, with plenty of time and not rush. You know, and uh, we we will be just fine. Okay. So uh, chapter two. Um, well, just this is a brief brief overview. Chapter one talked about the uh, three uh, three main teachings of uh, the American Christian uh, doctrine, right? Of Revivalism, pietism, and uh, sorry, revivalism, pietism, and 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 mysticism, right? And did anybody have any questions about those three things? Because I feel like I might not have been exactly clear or as clear about as clear as I should have been on those things. Just before we move on, I want to make sure we clear things up if we can. So just just as a brief recap, um, revivalism teaches that the Christian life begins with a personal decision to accept Christ. Right? You hear that a lot with altar calls, things like that. Come forward if you'd like to surrender your life to Christ. Um, but the point is that uh, Pastor Wolfmuller is making is that Jesus made salvation possible. You know, this is what this is basically what it boils down to. He makes it possible, but really it all starts with me, right? Revivalism fails to see the big picture of the scriptures, that our gracious God and Savior comes after us, grabs us up, gives us the gift of repentance and faith, and calls us to be his own dear friends. Our salvation is his work from the very beginning, and we are the beneficiaries of his mercy. And then pietism teaches that the Christian life is chiefly marked by a growth in good works, you know, that... Um, at best, pietism makes the gospel motivation for our works, but at worst, the gospel is understood as a demand for us to do better. You know, like, Jesus died for you, what will you now do for him, sort of thing. This horrible uh, laying on of guilt, turning the gospel into the law, sort of thing, right? Um, and he says, you know, that uh, when, in pietism, when we try to achieve comfort, certainty, or confidence through our works... We are grasping for ourselves what only Christ can give. Pietism fails to teach the comfort of the scriptures, that it is the Holy Spirit who keeps me in the faith through the word that my life of love is a gift from God, right? It's not about what we do. It's about what God is doing through us, right? Uh, Kind of a fine understanding, but something that's very important. And then mysticism. Mysticism teaches that we can have direct, um, direct, 
direct unmediated, um, direct, excuse me, direct unmediated um, access to God, right? That, uh, and this is something that I think was a little bit of a question last time. What exactly does that mean? Because I think someone, it wasn't in this class, but uh, the later class that says, you know, isn't that prayer? But that's not what prayer is, right? We are not standing in the presence of God by ourselves because if we were, like Moses, right, we would, like God told him, if you see my face, you will surely die. There's nothing good within us, even a lingering amount of good, that enables us to stand toe-to-toe with God, as it were, right? And that's kind of what mysticism promises, though. Mysticism promises that you can have direct access to God without any other real um, mediation between the two of you. But we do have that in Jesus, right? He, he took on our flesh so that we would be redeemed in body and soul. And because of his mediation uh, with his life and with his death and with, and with his resurrection, and with his ascension, we now have access to God because of him, right? So that blows mysticism right out of the water, as it were, okay? So he says, you know, that, um, again, uh, it says that um, mysticism fails because it requires me to put my hope and my faith in my own internal experiences instead of the Lord's promises, right? Mysticism runs aground on the solid rock of the scriptures because John writes, Whatever, whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, it's all about our feeling within our heart, right? And then enthusiasm um, teaches that the spiritual life happens inside of us. That is that it's all about our feelings. It's about what's happening inside, as opposed to the reality that the scriptures, the law and the gospel is external to us. That faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ, right? The word of God comes to us through preaching, through the proclamation uh, the sacraments are outside of us and come to us. God's grace is outside of us and comes to us. It's not about what happens inside of us and comes out, right? It's the exact opposite. So um, I just want to do a quick recap for our guests here who may not be familiar with exactly what the book is talking about, but y'all might have heard those terms before. Yeah? Fairly familiar? Okay. Good. Um, so he also talks about, you know, legalism, moralism, all these other things, right? Um, if you'd like to see more, you can check out the book. Um, chapter 2, though. Let's move on to chapter 2. Um, because we talked about chapter 1 well, well enough last time, but, uh, prodigal son and everything like that. But chapter 2, all right. Um, we're now talking about the scriptures, right? God speaks. Um and so let's let's just start with that first question. Inspired, um, inspired, inerrant, and infallible are the three attributes that American Christianity gives the Bible. But why isn't this? Why isn't this enough? Why does there need to be more than just that understanding? What does it say? What is what is Pastor? Um, Wolfmuller had to say about that. Um, 
can't breathe. Right. So that's that's ins- that's inspired, right? Inspiration, the spirit breathed out by God, right? As as Paul writes to uh, Timothy. Um, but and see, maybe y'all haven't thought of this before, right? Because we've always heard that the scriptures are inspired; they are without error; they are infallible. These things like that, right? They do not con- contradict themselves, and that's usually where we stop. Yeah. Um, Pastor Wolfmuller talks about three other um, three other aspects of the Word of God. Uh, he talks about what? Uh, it's on page like... 41, 42. Yeah, 40 to 42, where he's talking about inspired... Um, uh, the scriptures are inspired and inerrant and infallible. Um, and this isn't enough because... Um, they're only the beginning of the doctrine of the Lutheran doctrine, really, of sola scriptura. What's more to be said is that they are also clear. They are sufficient, and they are and and they are they are they are excuse me clear, sufficient, and efficacious. Right. So if you stop at the inspired. And the, the, if, if you say that it's all about inspiration, without error, and, and, sorry, when I stutter, vowels are really hard for me, so if I take some time on saying infallible, there you go, um, that's my little trick, uh, I talk before I get in that word, um, infallible, then you miss the point that the scriptures are clear, because the devil always tries to assert that the scriptures aren't clear, right? And that they are sufficient uh, because the devil and, you know, false doctrine would say that you need something more than just the scriptures, right? Uh, that you, he gets in this whole thing of, you know, what is God's will for my life? And that the scriptures are sufficient to give us these things, not in every single detail, but in the things that matter for salvation, Right? And then the scriptures are, are, are efficacious because the word has power and has authority to do what it promises to do, right? That's something that's severely lacking within the general American Christianity paradigm, okay? Um, any thoughts on that? Have you all thought about these things before? <laughs> I mean, the efficacious part of it, that the scriptures are effective in what they do, is the whole reason why we believe what we we believe about those sacraments, right? That it is the word of God combined with the water in baptism, that it is the word of God that is combined with the bread and the wine, that you know, delivers the body and the blood to us, right? It's, it's, it's the powers in the word, you know, but, and, and, and so the thing is, is that that doesn't really connect with a lot of American Christians, you know, that don't have that understanding. Uh, and so that might be a bridge that we need to gap at some point. That we need to gap, whatever, <laughs> going off, you know, 
that we need to close, close that gap with people before we can even talk about what the sacraments mean, right? Any other thoughts on that? Besides my own? <laughs> I know that yeah. we believe the three things, that soul and scriptures. Mm -hmm. so the scripture, scripture only. Yeah. Um, there's lots of different churches that the Bible is only one of many resources to look to. Mm -hmm. And you can determine by reading the Bible what is God-inspired and which isn't. That's interesting. Yeah, so so what example would you use for that? Like, what... Which, which tradition or church church body? ELCA. Yeah. Well, okay. three years ago, the Presbytery, I was raised in the Presbyterian church, mm -hmm. so I still, my my mom still would call herself a Presbyterian, I guess. Sure. Anyway, um, their Presbytery decided, formal, you know, papers, that the Bible was but one mm. authority. It's like, holy Toledo, what? You guys aren't even hardly Christian at that rate. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and, and that's kind of what he talks about in the book, that depending on your tradition, you know, Roman Catholics would, Roman Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox would say that you cannot interpret Scripture without tradition. And then likewise, with uh, more liberal mainline church bodies, ELCA, Episcopalian, you know, certain branches of the Presbyterian Church, right, the main mainline they would have say you can't understand scripture apart from culture, right? That's why they've gone off the rails with gay marriage and um, you know um, female pastors and things like that, right? That's why they've 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 said, well, we believe that the Bible contains the Word of God, as if that's you know clear on that point. So yeah, it, it's it's one of those things we we have a lot to kind of offer as Lutherans with Sola Scriptura, because there's just more than just uh, the three uh, first things of that. It's inspired, um, it's inspired, um, it's without error, and it cannot, and, and it's not, not able to have, not able to err, as it were, right? Um, there's more to that. So, uh, let's begin with clarity, all right? Number two. We can go through these things. As Lutherans, we believe in the clarity of the Bible, yet many other Christians simply don't. Is Scripture clear, though? Is Scripture clear? I think if you believe that it is the inspired Word of God, yes. Mm -hmm. It answers itself. If you have a question about something in the Bible that it says here or there, mm -hmm. there's going to be something that will back that up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if you don't think that Scripture is clear, you wind up needing those other things, tradition, culture, what have you. You need those things because you'll say, well, Scripture doesn't really say, so we're going to have to use something else to determine the answer to this question. Um, so, um, I think a good point that he makes here, um, that American Christianity, did, you know, he, he says different things about how Episcopalian Methodists, you know, 
fall into this trap. Um, you know, not, not necessarily pointing fingers just to point fingers, but to say, you know, this is how we diagnose the issue. Um, that whenever you have scripture and something else, right, the thing that matters is whatever comes after the and, right? Because if it's scripture and tradition, scripture and culture, uh, scripture and, you know, reason even, then reason is what matters. Culture is what uh, culture is what matters, and tradition is what matters uh, more than scripture. If that's the case, right? That's 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 on page forty-four. I think this is very interesting, though. He says American Christianity finally denies the clarity of scripture by denying theological certainty. Right? I thought it was very very interesting how he tied this in here. It sounds like this. I'm not a Lutheran or Presbyterian. I'm Christian, right? How many times have we heard this? Um, and, and, you know, Lutherans are Christians, right? You can be a Christian and be Presbyterian, all right? But the point of this statement, right, he says, this is saying, I don't think we can know with certainty whose teaching is correct. And what do you all think about that statement right there? If that's, if that's what that means, I don't think that we can know with certainty Whose teaching is correct? What is that basically saying? They all are. <laughs> or none of them are. Either none or all or somewhere in between. I mean, yeah, it's like there's no certainty there, right? Um, he says the unclarity of the scriptures abounds when, s when small group Bible studies, <laughs> like ourselves, right, are centered on the question, what does this text mean to you? Right? Y'all heard that question before? I mean, that, it makes for decent discussion, I guess, but on some level, when you only say, what does this mean to you? What does this mean to you? And to you, and to you, and to you, and to you. Well, it means something probably all different for all of you, and so therefore you just say, well, agree to disagree. And how can we be unified around those things, right? How can we be unified around uh, something when, when it's all centered around our own personal opinion, right? So he's saying, basically... The unclarity of the scriptures flourishes when theological assertions are labeled as opinions or the opinions of men. So they would say, you know, Lutherans, you think that you're so smart, you think you're so, uh, <laughs> you think you've got all the answers, but really what you have are the opinions of men. And that, I think that's, that's a huge challenge for us, you know, for, for confessional Lutherans is to say, well... Yeah, we, we, we subscribe to the Book of Concord. Not because the Book of Concord is just a great book, but because it actually interprets the scriptures, right? Nothing is said in the Book of Concord apart from rooting, like, rooting itself in what the scriptures actually have to say, right? Um, so he says, American Christianity is dogmatic on a few points, but it has a large and growing number of open questions, right? That is, places where the scriptures are not thought to speak with clarity. American Christianity is weak and growing weaker, teaching the unclarity of the scriptures. Uh, that's probably found most evidently in the Southern Baptist Convention right now, which you would think is a very conservative church body, but there are certain, you know, it's, this, the, the Southern Baptist Convention is a very different structure of, pi of polity than what we have, right? They're kind of a loose conglomeration of churches, but some of those churches are actually accepting or beginning to wrestle with and 
you know, uh, affirm the issue of, uh, of, of ordaining women to be pastors. And right now, the Southern Baptist Convention is still on that hard line saying, well, you can't be in fellowship with us if you have that teaching. Um, but they're getting to the point where they're not even able to say why. Right? They're getting to the point where they're not even able to say, well, why is it important that we only have men as pastors or this sort of thing? Because they have a lot of open questions that they're not answering. So that's a big deal, right? Um, and it's something that we need to be clear on with Scripture as well if we're going to go forward and be kind of a beacon to say, well, you know, uh, this is important. Right? These teachings are important, and Scripture is clear on these things. Right? Any, any, any comments or thoughts on that? In the vein of, of clarity, uh, Scriptures are clear. Is that in what the scripture says and what the scripture doesn't say? So or does the scripture say everything? Oh, the scripture doesn't tell you like the best way to brush your teeth or anything like that, right? I mean, the, the scripture doesn't tell you who you should marry, and he talks about that later on. Scripture doesn't tell you certain parts about life, but it does tell you what's important about salvation, eternal life, but... Um, scripture is also clear on uh, the things, well, I mean, like, I guess, yeah, Scripture is not clear on exactly, like, the melodies that we should sing in church, right? We can, we can choose these things for ourselves. Um, but it is clear on the things that, that are, I guess, well, there are some practices they don't so say. You kind of get into practices and traditions as well. Yeah. Because some of the traditions aren't clear in the Bible, or aren't in the Bible. Common cup. Yeah, it is. Versus. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. Versus yeah. Well, he says, well, he says, he lifted up the cup, you mm -hmm. know. And so that's been a big debate. I'm not going to get into it right now, but he's pretty, I think Jesus is very clear that we should all drink of the same cup. Correct. So when you bring in individual cups, that might muddy it for some people, mm -hmm. right? And that, that you're also getting into issue of conscience there as well. So, I, I am a proponent for the chalice, right? Uh, but I'm not going to bind people's consciences because of it, unnecessarily. You see what I mean? Mm -hmm. And scripture is clear about binding consciences too. So I'm also looking at that as well. But... In, in the Lutheran Church, the individual cups has been a very recent, recent innovation, as it were, right? Uh, not for bad reason, unnecessarily, but I think we're starting to see kind of a turn back to trying to emphasize the chalice more, uh, as an example, all right? There, there, there are other examples of these things. Uh, and I'll give an example. So last year we were in, in this area, we went on over to Louisiana, we went to an LCMS church in Lafayette, which shouldn't be an LCMS church. Should not. Should not. Okay. So you don't have to name names. It's okay. <laughs> no, it's okay. So the pastor there walked in. He didn't ask us who we were. Didn't ask us if we went to the Lutheran church. Didn't ask us if we were sinners who wanted to commit. He just kind of walked through and he pointed out. And he said, we have all the individual, the cups and the, and the, the bread, I think he called it. It's all in a plastic wrapper. They just pick one up there when you go in and take it on up. And then when you're ready, you can do it. It's all in the plastic wrapper. So nobody's touched anything. You don't have to worry about COVID or anything. And we looked at each other, and 
we sat down and somebody came up and said, would you like one of these? I said, no thanks. And he just told jokes and stories all the way through the service. And then for the time of the communion, the two of us looked at each other and got up and walked out. Mm-hmm. Interesting. It was like, it was a little part of the service that mm-hmm. he didn't say the words of institution or with any oh my gosh. essence to it. And you oh, just picked okay. up this oh. thing and ate it and drank it, whatever you kind of wanted. And we said, mm-hmm. no, we're not going to do this. You guys can do it, but we're not going to do it. And to me, that's, and I'm not critical of it, but once you go down that road, it becomes easier and easier and easier. You've read about how they're doing it online now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's a big issue right now. Yeah. It's in Lafayette. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you go in there next week. Or no. <laughs> <laughs> My sister lives in Leesville, Louisiana, uh-huh. and they just had a pastor. He just left them that was very very conservative. He was high church mm-hmm. and he tried to implement all the high church ideas mm-hmm. on this little bitty congregation. Mm-hmm. But anyway, mm-hmm. I just wanted to know. I'm going to ask her about it. Yeah. Well, yeah, the, the thing... Karen's book now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, so we have to understand that, yeah, scripture is clear even about things like closed communion. Uh, scripture is very clear about uh, things like um, confession and absolution, right? Because some people will even take offense at that, say, Pastor, how can you stand up there and say that you forgive my sins? It's like, no, you, you didn't really listen to me. I said, in the stead and by the command, like, I'm standing in the place of Christ. I'm just kind of I've heard it recently. I don't know if I necessarily agree with it, but I think it's kind of an interesting thing. I'm just like a glorified sock puppet at some point in time. The Lord is speaking through me to say, you are forgiven, right? Isn't that why you have a white collar? What's that? What, what does that symbolize? Yeah, well, I think the thought, the thought behind a, a white collar is that the voice of the pastor is to pr- pronounce God's word of you know, grace and salvation. Yeah, you you are like black that. as a sinner, but your collar is white. When the voice comes out, you're That's yoked. Right. That's this right. Is, this is a different voice coming out. It's That's not right. a sinner. It's it's the white collar that I have. That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. Did y'all know that about the collar? Oh. Yeah. I like that. Kind of Thank interesting. You. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the scriptures are clear on these things, uh, but it's not clear on other things that, really in the grand scheme of things are not all that important, right? As we, we as Lutherans, we speak where Scripture speaks, where Scripture is silent, we remain silent, right? Um, scripture does not say how the bread and wine become the body and blood of Christ. That's what Roman Catholics try to do with transubstantiation. We don't even go there. We just say, you want to know how? Take it up with him, all right? I just believe what my ears hear that Jesus says this is the body and blood. This is his body and his blood given for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Given and shed for you to eat and to drink. Right? That sort of thing. So, yeah. We can go on and on and on about where where scripture is clear. um, And that scripture is clear. uh, Because, what does he say? Yeah, he says, against anything that would cloud or muddy the text, we confess with King David the clarity of Scripture. You know, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Right? It is a light that shines in the darkness. 
It's not dim to where we can just barely make out the shapes. It is clear, it is clear and um, powerful to where we can see right from wrong. And I think a lot of things this past you know, couple years with COVID and things like that has made things very clear, right? Where scripture speaks about certain things, it has made things very, very clear. And, and you know, that goes with the way this world is going and in some ways the way a lot of churches are going. And we have to stand firm on the scriptures and what they have to say and not just our own opinions about what we should do about something, right? Okay, <laughs> moving on, because we need to. Uh, the Bible is sufficient, number three. It is enough for our life and our faith, and why do some argue that it isn't? Does, and does, does the Bible answer the question, what is God's will for my life? So let's start with that first question. Why do some argue that the Bible isn't sufficient? What does he say about that? They're looking for personal answers. I, I, I just think they're looking for something very personal to them. Yeah. Um, what does he say there on page 45, uh, kind of beneath that big quotation there? It says, according to American Christianity, if I have a personal relationship with God, then I need a personal revelation from God. Uh, you know, it's like <clears throat> somebody might, might say... Um, God, I don't know exactly what classes I should take for college. Please tell me what I should take. Should I take English or should I take history? Right? Should I take biology or should I take chemistry? Right? And, and, and that sounds maybe on some level a little silly, but I've known people that have thought this. Right? They're just like, I really want to know. And then they'll say, but God made it very clear that I should take biology and not chemistry. And I'm just like, how do you, how do you know these things? How did he tell you? Please tell me, because I think I think that'd be a really neat thing for God to tell me exactly what I should do every single day, you know, um, whether or not I should uh, brush my teeth or just chew a piece of gum, right? You know, that sort of thing. Um, that came out of the '60s and '70s. Six, in the Lutheran Church. And it didn't come out of the Lutheran Church. Well, it did some of the some of the ministers that were. They probably were affected by this, right? By, yeah. Yeah. By this and that's that's kind of his main side. point is that. We're not, we're not going to, in this book, he's not going after any specific denomination. He's going behind the ideas right. and the teachings that, in, that really affect all churches in America. I mean, how can it not, right? So that's what he's talking about. Yeah, but personal relationship with God, then I need a personal revelation. In, in some ways, again, like I said last time, this is kind of going in the back door of Roman Catholicism, Right? Because in Roman Catholicism, how do you know that you should be either a priest or a monk or a nun? You get a revelation from God telling you that you should do these things like what Martin Luther had when he was on the road uh, back home from school and he was caught in the thunderstorm and he prayed to St. Anne, I'll become a monk if you save my life. And he was spared, so he became a monk, right? He saw that as a revelation from God that he should be a monk. And that's still Roman Catholic teaching. How, and, and so it's like, it's kind of interesting how American Christianity, again, kind of comes full circle on the, the errors that we have been trying to correct with the Reformation. <laughs> um, any thoughts on that? I always see that yeah. as, as the, the person is, is making the decision on their own and applying it, saying it's God's decision. It's, it's, 
that's magical in my, in my, my <laughs> that, life. That they're, that's mysticism. That they're the one who is saying, that like, they don't realize that it's them making the decision. Right. They just say that God is kind of telling them what, what they should do. I, really, I think that's really what's happening. You know, I think that's really what's happening because God never promises that he's going to tell you every single thing for your life. He's going to tell you how to be wise. Right? That's what Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, wisdom, uh, wisdom writings are all about. It's about how to live a righteous life in the fear of God wisely to avoid foolishness. But it's not going to tell you exactly how to do it, um, except unless... It's like if you see foolishness, run away from it, right? That, that sort of thing. But it kind of tells you how to identify these things. Um, because life is really much more complicated uh, than, than I guess the Bible really cares about <laughs> at some point. You see what I mean? That really God is interested in you um, believing. He's really believing. He's, he's really about you trusting in him you know, according to the Ten Commandments and according to the gospel. That's what he really, really cares about. Um, and he all, and that includes living a righteous life. But there's some freedom there for how we are to go about these things. Um, it's kind of interesting. So sufficiency of scripture, some would say that it's, it's not because I need a personal revelation. And then does the Bible answer what is God's will for my life? Does it answer that question? Sure. Sure. Yeah. So what is God's will for my life? Salvation. Yeah. It's salvation. Really? Right? We should all be saved. Right. It is salvation. Um, yeah, we are to rejoice. We, we rejoice that in the Lord's word, we have all that we need for life and salvation. Right? Um, we have everything we need. Right? Um Okay, any, any further thoughts or questions about sufficiency of Scripture? I don't know whether it fits here, but okay. you know, I had a little problem with question four. Okay, yeah. That we believe the Bible is efficacious, and it is. Right. But whether we believe the Bible is God's Word or not, it is. It's true, yeah. It, you know, it, yeah. you can deny it that it's the Word of God, but that doesn't change it. It still is the Word of God. As I like to say, you have every right to be wrong. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You have every you have every right to be wrong. Yeah, that's your right. Right. Uh, the Bible is true. It is efficacious. You know, and so that's the thing, though, is that that's then that's why that question is very important. If one loses sight of this truth, right? Because truth is not relative. Truth is objective. If someone loses sight of this truth that the scriptures are powerful and have authority, what happens to them? What happens? Becomes irrelevant. Yeah, maybe worse than that, right? Uh, it becomes irrelevant. What else? I mean, I guess it depends on if you're a Christian or not, right? But if you're a Christian and you don't believe that the scriptures are, are powerful and have authority, um, then really you're, in, you're going down a really dangerous path because you're beginning to deny the power of the Holy Spirit, right? You begin to say that, um, that 
again, I need something more, right? Um, he says at the ba bottom of page 47, right? Um, when the efficacy of, of the scriptures is lost, the result is great confusion with other doctrines, including conversion, the sacraments, the church, worship, evangelism, and our Christian living. If God's word is not... If God's word is not efficacious, creative, and powerful, then we are looking for strength and power in other places, most often in ourselves. Right? That we gotta gotta find it somewhere. It's gotta come from somewhere. Oh hey, who's right here? Me. Right? That's yeah, it, what it, we all boils down to popular term today is your truth. Right. It all boils down to a man's ego. And his desire to be in control mm -hmm. of a situation, any situation, yeah. and and make it into his own image, I guess. It's the same old struggle we've been dealing with from the very, very <clears throat> right. beginning. All these points, really. Oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah absolutely. The clarity, they're just, the sufficiency, the... the they're just taking on different flavors, as right. it were, right? Yeah, yeah. But you take the, you take the spirit out of the equation, and, what, and you don't have any active... Yeah, uh, but... It's not an act of living faith. Then, then it literally becomes a dead letter. Yeah. It, it's just words on a page. Right? Less is more. What's that? Less is more. Less is more. Okay. Is that uh, you telling me to just keep going? Yeah. All right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And if you're not taking your instruction from the A team, then you're taking it from the B team. Ah, right? that's now, you're, now you're taking your lead from... That's a good point. The devil. Yeah, that's right. Right. And that yeah. usually doesn't work well. No. It does not. It's kind of funny because, like I said before, things have gotten much more clearer, at least for me, and I hope they become more clear for y'all, with, with the way the world is going. Things are... Uh, the more I go on, the more I see there is no real neutrality in this life. You know what I mean by that? That things are not so neutral. Um, not even technology, you know, a, a popular thing. And I was in a conversation with somebody last week uh, about, you know, it's just like, well, we have smartphones and actually I'm, I'm starting to think I should probably get like a flip phone, uh, to be honest with you. And, and, uh, you know, don't, don't worry. I'm not going off the grid. I still have a computer and stuff. I still will answer emails and whatnot. But the thing is, is that I, I want, I'm starting to see that there's a lot of things in this world with technology, with stuff where people will say, well, it's, it's neutral. It's how you use it. And my point is that, well, when you're on the internet and you're just browsing a news article, do you have any control over what the advertisements are that pop up that you see, right? Do you have any control over the advertisements that pop up on a TV? You don't really, unless your TV's listening to you and tailoring it for what you want, that sort of thing. You know, it's kind of a creepy thing now. But um, the thing is, is that more and more things are not... I'm seeing things are not very neutral. It, they're either of God or they're of Satan. Mm -hmm. um, now, you might think I'm pretty harsh on that. You might think I'm kind of going overboard. You might think, in, Pastor, it's a little extreme. But the thing is, is that the more we go on, I'm just like, well, I, there's only two kinds of spirits. There's either the Holy Spirit, and if, you're not the Holy, if it's not the Holy Spirit, it's a demon. <laughs> it is that simple. It is that clear. Jesus speaks as much, right? What's interesting is over our lifetime, it's gone from, I'm okay, you're okay, to being kind of, 
you do your thing, I'll do my thing. Don't, right. You know, we won't bother each other. Everything, Mind your own business. Every, every, yeah, everything's fine. Yeah. You know, people are searching for absolutes. The only issue now, the only, right now, the absolutes are secular. Mm. You know, that's they're turned into a religion. So the Bible being the absolute. That's my point, yeah. The secular world's an absolute. Yeah, so, there's no such thing as so secular. That's a religion in itself. You're, see, yeah. you're seeing people searching for absolutes, but they're searching for their absolutes. Right. <laughs> so they've taken... Yeah. You know, it's interesting that you see a lot of the old 70s activists, for instance, some of these rockers that are, you know... Getting off spot, you know, wanting to get yeah, off right. Spotify. Yeah, that whole thing, you know. If it's you don't believe what I believe, then you're. <laughs> we're, we're back in the, you know, they were. Yeah. It was the man that was putting them down. Now they're putting people down. Yeah, because they are the man. They are the yeah. man. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that's kind of my point is that you know there there is no thing that we we've always said you know well, well what's religious and what's secular secularism is a religion, right? And it is apart from the church. And if it's apart from the church. It's from Satan. Like, let's not pick, let's, let's, let's not make any bones about it. That's not to say that we can just go live like the Amish, apart from everything, and not be involved with the world at all. But as Jesus said, be in the world, but not of it. Right? Understand where the lines are drawn. Yeah? Okay. There I go, getting long-winded again. All right, so. Sorry, we love it. We are. We are going to get to chapter three. All right? Chapter three is probably the best one. Chapter yeah, book. that's why we're going to get there. Chapter 3 is the best. It's, it's, it's really good. Um, so, uh, base... Oh, man, I love this. Number 5. Basic instructions before leaving Earth. Who's heard that before? Yeah, you don't have to raise your hand. I know you all have heard that before, right? Or at least most of you. Right? The Bible stands for basic instructions before leaving Earth. The Bible as instruction manual is horrible. It's horrible. It's terrible. It is... One of the worst things that you could ever say about scripture, honestly. Um, what are the shortcomings with this approach? What, why is this bad? What makes this bad? This is the central point. What's that? It misses the central point of the Bible. Yeah. It's not self-help, right? Salvation. Right? Yeah. It is salvation. Yeah, the Bible's about salvation. If it's an instruction manual, I mean... Yesterday, I went to go uh, get my car um, serviced and everything like that, and it still had the service light come on. So I was like, I'm, I'm going to look up my instruction manual and see how I'm going to turn this light off. And I did it. But do you think that I said, ooh, what else is in here? Let me see what else I can read from my instruction manual for my car. When was the last time you sat by the fireplace and sat down and read, read the instruction manual to your oven? You know, it's not interesting, right? It's not interesting to read... An instruction manual about what you got to do because chances are, be like, well, I've never faced that before. Why would I need to know about that, right? Instructions also are not very uh, beneficial for us, um, <laughs> in the sense that, well, they're beneficial to a certain point, right? Like self-help books, right? But the Bible's not self-help, like he says, right? It does offer us peace, but it is the peace of repentance, the peace that comes from the outside. Peace accomplished before we were born in the bleeding and dying of Jesus, right? That's not anything about what we can do. That's all about what Christ has done for us, right? Okay. Man. We could say more, but we probably should move on, right? 
because it gets into more there that um, our doctrine is our salvation. Page 51, right? Uh, what is your reaction to this statement? Our doctrine is our salvation. Agree, disagree, thoughts, comments? You can take it both ways, kind of, I think, anyway. Okay. Um, our doctrine points us at the Scripture and the cements the fact that Scripture is infallible. It's, it is our way to salvation. Okay. Yeah, it is. Uh, doctrine is not just man's opinion, right? Uh, we, can't, we can't just simply, you know, when the Bible speaks very clearly about, let's just go to the, the one, you know, like whether or not women should be pastors or whether or not, you know, like whatever, you know, it's like whether or not women should be pastors, whether or not homosexuals should be pastors. It's like the scripture is very clear that the overseer, the pastor should be the husband, that's a man, of one wife. So he is a heterosexual male filling the role of a pastor. Very clear, right? Um, we have these doctrines, and that in itself is not an innocuous, is, is, is not, not irrelevant to the understanding of salvation either, right? Because a pastor ought to be a man who stands before a congregation in the stead of the man, Jesus Christ, who stands before his bride, the church, proclaiming salvation for their sins, right? When you flip the script on that and say, well, a woman can be a pastor too, and all of a sudden, as, as, um, as, as my fieldwork supervisor once said in a sermon, which I thought was brilliant and bold, he said, when you have women pastors, it becomes spiritual lesbianism. You see the point? A woman is standing where the husband should be. Never thought of that. <laughs> but see that, like I said, that's a doctrine, but it also points to what we understand about salvation. Our doctrine is our salvation. The word of the Lord is clear. It is sufficient. It is inerrant. It is inspired. It is without, you know, it is, it, it, it cannot err. Um, it, it is all these things because that's how solid our understanding of salvation needs to be. If your understanding of salvation is shaky, then you have no certainty, you have no comfort, you have no hope, right? Um, it begins to unravel over time. Yeah. So, yeah, it, 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 our doctrine is our salvation. I've also heard, you know, our doctrine is our life. This is how we live. This is how we understand what true life is through Christ, right? Um, but he says on the page before that, page 50, he's like, American Christianity fails to teach the centrality of the gospel and the Bible, right? Um, they think more along the lines, you know, the, the, the temptation is, what is God telling me to do today as opposed to what is God teaching me about himself? Right? What is God teaching me about himself and his will for me through Jesus Christ, right? So, any, any, any comments on that? Well, it always brings up a question to me. This does. Okay. I've had this discussion with multiple people. So when you attend a denomination that has female pastors, and the young couple goes and gets counseling, gets married by a female pastor. Okay. And then two years later, this young couple has a baby and gets baptized by this female pastor. Interesting. Then I just say, look at what all it opens up downstream. And therefore, I say the future of Christianity in North America is pretty dim. 
That's why I really get excited when I hear how many blacks around the world want to come to our seminaries. Yeah. I mean, in some countries there's... In Africa, three, yeah. Three, four, five thousand young men who uh. would love to come to St. Louis or Fort Wayne. Huh? And I'm of the mindset, screw North America. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's just start bringing money in and training these guys because these guys get it. It's real to them. And Amen. To, and to most North Americans, it's... Well, I don't know. Maybe we can turn it around. And I see. But look what we're developing since the 60s and 70s. Like I think you so appropriately said. The 70s were the, the whole Seminex thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've been fighting this garbage for 50 years. Mm -hmm. Yep. <laughs> more, more, more than 50 years. Yep. And I'm not throwing up my hands. I'm just saying, there's some it's really tough. cool guys overseas. Yeah. Young guys. Yeah. Who, who love singing. Who yeah. love the word. Yeah. Who love dedicating themselves for the next 50 years to their village. Yep. Um, and then I got some guy telling me, well, my daughter got married by a female and their baby is baptized by a female. So what's the difference? And I'm thinking, go for it. I'm, well, I'm it's, at, that, at that point, it's like, well, we need to talk about other things before we can talk about that. You know, like our, our conversation can't start there. Because yeah. it's a fundamental difference. Um, but we can have that conversation if you want. Um, I, I will say, though, yeah, you're right. There are tons of guys in Africa who are, you know, Lutherans. And Lutheranism is flourishing in, Af like, Christianity in general is flourishing in yeah, Africa. It's huge. it's huge. But here's the problem, though. You know, I've, I've, I've heard something about, you know, it's like people in Africa are wanting to send missionaries to America. <laughs> On some level, that's very admirable and noble. And, but at the same time, it's not going to work as well as if, as, it's not going to work as well um, as the um, possibility of us raising up our own people that are from America, you know, regardless of race or whatever. Our own people from America who understand the culture a little bit better, who, you know, Whenever we were, would go over to Africa, any missionary who goes over to Africa, they never plan for that missionary to be a permanent installment. Like that's that, that's that community's pastor for the rest of their lives. They're always trying to raise people up and men up within that congregation and that village or that town to be pastors because they're going to be much more effective in shaping the culture, in leading people the way they need to go. So it's like, they can send missionaries over here, and that would be fine. I would work with them. But if we're not raising up our own people that have been born and raised here and things like that, then we're kind of, it's it's just not going to be as effective. And history has shown that. <laughs> That's fun. No, I'm not proposing that. I'm saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm basically throwing up my hands in North America. Yeah, yeah. Well, North America. I mean, we're kind of like Europe right now, or heading right there. And so I, let's just focus on the Philippines. We're doing all that's for sure. All well, I see it this way. I, I see it this way. You know, and and if you know your small catechism well, you'll you'll know this that at the end of the Ten Commandments, it's like, what does what does God say about these Ten Commandments? He says, "I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those that hate me, but promising love and mercy to." the thousandth generation of those that hate me. I see that third and fourth generation thing as an opportunity. Because now you're seeing people in the Northeast, like in the, what, like 
Pennsylvania and Maryland and, and you know, New York and Maine and all these things like that, where you have grandparents didn't go to church, parents didn't go to church, kids don't go to church. Hey, that's three generations. At some point, you're actually going to be able to go to those people with Christian doctrine, not something that's kind of, that's sort of Christian. You're going to be able to go to them and it's going to be new. And it's going to be exciting, and it's going to be refreshing. You see what I mean? That in some sense, like, the Northeast, it seems dead right now, but on some level, that could be very fertile ground for people who are just sick and tired of the third and fourth generation of just languishing in sin and despair. Right? So I see it as an opportunity. It's not necessarily going well, to well, be something great. Yesterday, yeah. today, and, and tomorrow. That's right. We talk about truth, real truth. Yeah. Um, there's no real truth these days. That's right. And maybe we're at a tipping point. I'll be the optimist. We're at a tipping point. Mm -hmm. People are going to start looking again yeah. for real truth because yeah. secular truth changes every day. Our every wind and wave our, of doctrine, I mean, right? Quickly. I mean, the yeah, yeah. Kids, cycles are getting shorter and shorter. Right. Yeah. Two things. The brand new president of the St. Louis Seminary is an mm -hmm. Iowa boy who wrote his PhD thesis, 750 pages on the exact phrase you just uh, elucidated. Yeah, the, the, the third and fourth generation. Excellent read if you ever get there. Okay. But secondly, the seminaries at St. Louis in Fort Wayne used to have 125, 100 students. Right. How, many, how many do they have now? Freshman class. Uh, it's somewhere in the 30s and 40s. Yes. Oh, I didn't know. And yeah, of oh, those, yeah. In my humble opinion, of those, I don't know how to say this gently. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> but there are a number of those who should never be in the ministry mm -hmm. and for multiple reasons. And I could go into detail, but whoa. Yeah, you should, yeah that's okay. So what I'm yeah. saying is I understand your position. Yeah. But if you only got 30 kids in each freshman class at each seminary, and half of those may not even make it, you got a great idea. Once again, my my proposal is give up on North America. Let's send our money No, no, no. We can't. We can't. It's it's one of those things of like I can. Well, okay, you can. But I'm gonna be like Saint Paul. I'm gonna be like Saint Paul. I'm 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 gonna take his lead when he says that um, he would do anything that 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 he wished that his people, the Jews, right, that his people would believe. He wished it so badly and he hopes for it so badly that he would say, if it were possible, I would even go to hell so that they would be saved. Right? That I would be condemned so that they would live forever. And so it's like, if we give up on North America, you know, then, then you know, well, what's going to happen with our grandkids and our great-grandchildren? What's, what's going to happen to them if we give up? So, something to think about. Something to think about. Um, you know, but that's not to say that we can't find ways to consolidate. You know, we have a lot of congregations that are probably, uh, in a lot of ways, going. you know, all churches in America are on decline. And now it's going to be a time to figure out what we can do to kind of circle the wagons. Uh, what other models there are to, to kind of help with that. I don't, I don't know. I'm not an expert in that field. But that's one of those things where we're given wisdom and we should act wisely in these things. So, oh, I love how these things just kind of 
go off a little bit, but it's always good stuff. I really like it. Um, how about this? Let's just, let's just keep keep going here. Um, why are why are these two questions important when reading scripture? Uh, one, what is God teaching me about Himself, and where is the comfort? Why are these important? Why is it important to ask the question, what is God teaching me about himself? Let's start there. That's the beginning of salvation, basically. Yeah. Where does it put the focus? Not on me. Yeah. Back to where it should be, right? On who God is and what he's trying to tell us about what he's doing, right? And why that's important, okay? What about where is the comfort? Why is that an important question when reading scripture?
This desire for something new and exciting runs through American Christianity. This desire for something new and exciting and entertaining stands behind the, uh, the adjective contemporary, which is stuck like a leech to the word worship. <laughs> Buzzwords like relevant and life application are indications that we seek excitement, most often an excitement apart from the scriptures. Okay? So we're always looking for something new. We're always looking for something exciting. That's why in, in the church, whenever we do make changes, it's only after careful, thoughtful, prayerful discussion and contemplation and pray, you know, just we, we, we need to not just jump the gun on changing things willy-nilly because everything has consequences, and there's even the law about that, the law of unintended consequences, right? We don't always know what our actions are going to produce, and we're going to have blind spots. So more often than not, we should stick with things that are tried and true, and that includes and especially is the Word of God, right? So when he says that we should be surprised by the next page of Scripture because God is always surprising in the Bible. He never does what we expect Him to do. So when we read our Scriptures, we should be delighted whenever something, you know, whenever something happens that's not expected. We're always, what does he say? Reading the Bible is an adventure. It's a, so he says um, that we're always... Um, Jesus is best at the surprises. A man asks to be healed, and Jesus spits on his eyes. <laughs> a woman prays that her daughter would be rescued from the demons, and Jesus acts like he can't hear her, and then and then calls her a dog. Right? He walks on water, sleeps through a storm, pays taxes with a coin in a fish's mouth. I mean, it goes on and on from there. It's actually really exciting if you have the eyes to see it. Right? So, um, thoughts on this? Comments? Questions? before we move on and in fact if y'all want to take like a quick break before we go on to chapter 3 that might be nice right so how about, how about we'll take a quick break before we go to chapter 3 use the restroom, get a drink of water be back in like 5 minutes if that's alright so we continue on to the best chapter right Tim right. break time um, all right, well, it's been five minutes. Let's, let's keep going. Uh, and this won't take very long. I mean, it's a, it's a pretty short chapter, pretty straightforward chapter. Um, chapter three, we do need to get caught up on this. Um, so it's, I, I love the title of the chapter, How Bad a Boy Are You, right? Um, so that first question, American Christianity softens the Bible's teaching on sin. See that on page 58, right? How does revivalism, pietism, and or mysticism feed into this? Understand. So let's start with revivalism. How does revivalism, well, I guess, you know what? Can you summarize all three and like how they can lead into this understanding that American Christianity softens the Bible's teaching on sin? How do they do that? Well, they try to tell us we're not as bad as we really are. That's right. Yeah. And that we can do it. Yeah. Sure. You're an American. You can do it. Right? I think I said that last, last time that this is very appealing to Americans, especially revivalism, because it's like, uh, it, like you, would, you would see this back, I think, in the 1800s. 
where you would have like signs who would say, you know, cast your vote for Jesus, right? And voting is very American, right? And it has to do with what I would like to see with my will and what I'd like to see done, right? So revivalism, pietism, mysticism, you know, they all feed into that uh, idea that we have some goodness that's left within us, right? That there's some, some divine spark within us that, that can allow us to make a decision for Jesus, that can find comfort in my own good works, or, or, and or I can stand face to face with God, right? Um, without, with, without being destroyed, <laughs> you know, by myself, okay? So, um, number two then, this kind of leads into it, that is all affected by our doctrine, um, by, by, our, by the doctrine of original sin. So, uh, that is the sin we have through Adam, right? And why is that an important doctrine? Because one man put us into sin, mm -hmm. one man can get us out of sin. Right, yeah. Only. Only, yeah. Yeah, the, the perfect man, the new Adam, Jesus Christ, right? Um, yeah, so um, it explains how our sinful nature is the root and the fountainhead of all sins, right? Uh, it clarifies the root of our sin. It, the, it is the proper, like he said, diagnosis so that we can have the proper cure, right? If, and, and we'll talk about this, I think, in uh, number four. Um, but let's, let's kind of take it one at a time here. Um, because sin, death, and the devil are always together, page 60, right? Sin, death, and the devil are are always together, what, is, what does that mean? I think it's an important distinction to make. What does that mean, sin, death, and the devil are always together? What's that? The devil causes us to sin. Yeah, he tempts we us, sin, right? Right. Yeah. And if we sin and don't ask for forgiveness, we're going to go, we're going to die. Yeah, die eternally, right? Yeah. So sin leads to both physical and spiritual death, right? We, we die because we are sinners. That's, that's why when people say, you know, well, babies can't have sin. It's like, well, can babies die? The wages of sin is death. I mean... Um, yeah, one of the things that we're kind of wrestling with with our uh, the the um, impending birth of our son here in March is you know, you know how how long do we wait to baptize him, <laughs> right? And I think what we're gonna do because I we're a little nervous about it, but we're not like nervous because we don't trust that God will sustain him or whatever like that. But when we had Charlotte, we had like. Uh, when we had Charlotte, it was like two weeks until we baptized her on a Sunday. And it was really strange. And I kind of sympathized with Amelia because Amelia was like, it feels weird having an unbaptized baby in the house. 
was like, and I was like, I think I, I think I know what you mean because it's like, that is a promise of salvation for that child. And we should, we should, we should want to give it to that kid soon. And if people want to wait, I do not fault them at all, but I think we're going to, we're going to baptize that boy pretty soon after, uh, and we're just going to have to be like, hey, we're on call. Like, if anybody wants to come to the baptism, we're going to do it at the church and y'all can come over, you know, kind of thing. And then later on, we'll have like a party to celebrate the baptism. Um, but it's one of those things. It's like babies can sin. We are sinners. And life and salvation is given to the promise of baptism because of what the word declares, right? Um, and so it's one of those things that sin, death, and the devil are always together. And because we sin... Because we sin much daily, as the catechism says, right? We need that, that comfort. Um, but yeah, sin leads to both physical and can lead to spiritual death. The devil is always exploiting this connection so you would be deceived and die eternally. Yeah. Didn't Luther say, let's baptize this heathen yeah. now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, first day. Right. First, why, why don't you baptize in the hospital and have recognition a couple weeks later? That's that was that was the thought, but my thought was that you know it's it's good for the church to see a baptism if they can. It's good for people to be encouraged by seeing a baby being baptized. So that was kind of the compromise that we made. It's just like, well, when this boy comes, we're just gonna say, He's here, meet us at the church tomorrow when we're discharged from the hospital. We're going straight to the church and we're going to have a baptism. You know, uh, it's not going to be anything super, super special with like, you know, a full service and hymns and everything, but we're just going to be straightforward baptism for this little boy. Wait a minute, it's not going to be anything super special? As far as, well, you know, <laughs> it's not going to be, it's not going to be, yeah, okay, fine. It's going to be a huge deal. A little boy is going to become a child of God, yes. Uh, we're just not going to add any hymns. Let me just say that, okay? You got me, man. That's good. I like that. See, the pastor is not always... The king of yeah. The other thing, uh, uh, yeah. there was a, uh, an old man that still regretted that his twin daughters had not been baptized. He didn't know yeah. when they were young that, that they could do this. that. Yeah. And, and someone told me that... Because Amelia is in church and she reads the Bible and she sings hymns and that Holy Spirit is already working on baby boy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. That's not something that we should necessarily... No, no, we shouldn't, but, but... I know what you mean, though. It's very true. I mean, John the Baptist leapt in the womb of That's his right. mother when he heard the greeting of, you know, the mother of our Lord, you know? So... Um, yeah, it's 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 one it's of those. It's comfort anyway. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's it is comforting. Holy Spirit is already working on. Um, yeah, the I mean, Charlotte like would be very active in church in the womb, and the little boy. You know, I think Amelia said yesterday. She's like, he likes the hymns. You know, <laughs> he likes the hymns. He kicks a lot when we sing. You know, so yeah, I mean, I love maybe that. he doesn't like. <laughs> That's why we're gonna baptize him, Tim. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so all right, so yeah, sin, death, and the devil are always together, and that's why we, we need to 
understand, you know, who God is, what what his what our understanding of sin should be, and it connects everything to salvation, right? Now, this leads to the next very good question, which I thought maybe three and four should have been flipped, but I, I, they made the decision for this reason. I don't know why they did, but our sinful nature comes first, then, then our sinful actions. What difference does that make? So let me just ask this. What happens if the understanding is that our sinful actions make us sinful? Let's suppose the other way around. You know, that's kind of... He says it's it's like a, a chicken and the egg kind of question. Which comes first? Well, we're inherently sinful. We're, we're sinners, so we sin. Right. But what happens when you flip the script? What happens when you have the opposite understanding? You, you, you can save it. yourself. Yeah, okay. And then you, you need to do better. Yeah, you need to do better because you can save yourself, right? Uh, that's what he says. He says, you know, most theologies, um, say, including many in American Christianity, teach that we become sinners when we sin, right? Sinful actions come first, and when we sin, we become sinners. That's the thought. Um, but that's kind of like, that's a misdiagnosis, right? It's kind of, what has he said? He said, you know, woe to the man with a broken leg who's diagnosed with cancer, it's like, it's the wrong diagnosis. You're going to be treated with chemotherapy instead of getting a cast and maybe setting the bone back to where it should be, right? It's the wrong treatment for the wrong diagnosis. You're going to get gangrene and die. That's right. And that's, that, and that's kind of the thing. It's one of the things I keep saying is that, uh, and one of those things I keep trying to drive home is that, you know, false doctrine is like having a broken leg or some other, or like a burn, or whatever, some other kind of injury to the body. And if you don't diagnose it appropriately, you may not die right away. Like you can live with a broken foot for a while, uh, or a broken arm, or whatever. But but over time, it's going to cause you a lot of problems, and it could lead to the bone marrow getting into the bloodstream, and you die. Right? It can possibly lead to spiritual death. Now, how how much do you want to try that out is the question, right? Um, how much how much false doctrine do you like in in the mix? It's it's kind of like I think I think I've heard um, on issues etc uh, the host Todd Wilkin say, you know, how much how much arsenic do you like in your drinking water? How much are you comfortable with? Right? It's one of those things, it's like, you can still be a Christian with a false understanding about a few things, but it's dangerous. You're really taking a risk that you should not take. Which, one of the big things is, and he talks about it early here, is sin, right? If you misunderstand the, the, the way that the sinful nature is that leads us to sin, and not the other way around, if you misunderstand that, you miss a lot, right? If you, uh, it's... Another thing is that if you're um, shooting a gun with target practice, you know, that sort of thing, if you, if you miss by an inch, you miss by a mile. If you're off just that much, then, then the trajectory takes you way off to the side, right? Um, so it's important that we get these things right um, because it could lead to dire consequences. Any thoughts on that? Questions, comments? Nope. Okay. 
Um, which of these, which of the three functions of the law, curb, mirror, guide, is most compelling to you? I don't know if I like that question, but we'll ask it. <laughs> so, and I've, and I know I've gone through this before, but it bears repeating, right? So three uh, functions. Some people say uses. I don't really like that. Um, three functions. Some people say offices. I mean, that's kind of a more abstract way of looking at it. Three functions or offices of the law. So we'll just actually keep functions and get rid of offices. I don't want to confuse y'all. So three functions of the law. Um, curb. Mirror. Guide. Okay? Just so we have it all up there. What, which one is more compelling for you? I don't, I don't, I don't, I, I don't really like that question because then it gets into the realm of what does this mean to you? But we'll ask it, right? What's, what ought to be the most compelling? Yeah. Huh? Guide. Guide? Mirror. Mirror? Mirror curve. <laughs> curve. Let's get them all three in there, right? Yeah. Good job, guys. All right. That's funny. Oh man, yeah. Okay, so um, I don't know. It's 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 one of those things. I think. Do y'all get? Are you uncomfortable with the distinctions of the law like this? You should ask that question. Is it uncomfortable to see the law parsed out like that? Some people might get come might get uncomfortable because then it. I don't know. For some reason, clarity for some people becomes very scary. Um, but answer me this: How is yeah. curb and guide really different? Oh, okay, good, good question. So, curb. So curb is um, the ditches on the side of the road. <laughs> yeah, right. The curb is uh, for unbelievers and believers alike, right? Meaning that it is mainly within the realm of the civil life, as it were. That we crime are, yeah, crime and punishment. We do not uh, murder. We do not steal. These sorts of things. Therefore, we should not covet, because then it leads to stealing. These sorts of things, right? That is for believers and unbelievers alike. Uh, and so is mirror. We'll get to that guide. And and I think I got some pushback on this at first, but hopefully it makes more sense that guide is only for Christians. It is only for those who have been, um, those who have been given faith and uh, salvation by the Holy Spirit, because now we can live in the law as a guide uh, joyfully, whereas before it was just because we were fearing punishment, right? It's it's kind of that same that same sort of understanding of what kind of fear do you have, servile or servile or or ah, filial fear, right? The fear of a slave or the fear of a son, right? This is more of a fear of a slave, a fear of punishment. Guide is the fear of a son that's doing the things that their father asks them to do because they know that it's good, right? Um, that's the main difference. You could say more about it if you want me to. <laughs> Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. So, 
did back in the olden days, did we learn a different word for guide? I I, I can't remember, but it doesn't rule. guide. Rule. Rule. Curb rule and curb mirror rule. rule. Was that curb was? mirror rule. Yeah, sure. I guess. I, I think maybe this change came in with the 1980s translation of the of the small catechism or something. I don't know. But um, yeah, I mean, it it is the same. It's synonymous for sure. <laughs> guide may be better for our understanding of language as it is today. I don't know. Um, that's a good question. I really don't know. I'll, I'll have to look into that. Um, so yeah. So which which one is most compelling? I, probably depends whether you're a parent or. Yeah, it depends on where you are, probably. Right. Yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah. If you're, I mean, as parents would like to say the rules. If you use it as a guide, well, but the thing is, and this is something that I learned at the seminary, it's like, um, you can talk about these distinctions, but it's never always this easy, right? This is our best attempt at being able to make it clear because when you really dive into these things, it starts to get pretty, pretty complex, actually, because... Uh, and, and some people try and use the, the, that's why I think, okay, here, let me just say this. The reason why I don't like for it to say the three uses of the law, because it puts it in the realm of our abilities to be able to manipulate the law, to be a curb, to be a mirror, to be a guide, as opposed to just saying, do not steal. And just letting that be enough. As opposed to trying to curb it to say, well, but you can, you know, stealing, uh, that's probably bad because you're going to get punished and this and that. And that's me talking about it as a curb. It's like, well, it, what? Do you, what? It's, it's, it's a fool's errand, honestly, to try and shape it for yourself to only mean one of these three things. As opposed to just speaking the word and having it do what it sets out to accomplish, right? Um, because... You can talk about the law as a guide all you want, but somebody out there is going to be afflicted by it because they know they haven't been doing this, and then it becomes the mirror. It shows you the sin that you have not followed it as a guide. Right? You see what I'm saying? You can try all you want, but someone out there is going to hear it in a different way. No matter how hard you try. Okay? Um, so I think... To me, the most compelling one is probably mirror, right? Because it all kind of comes back to that. Even, even though you are doing your best to try and use the law as a guide in your life as a Christian, you're doing the things you're supposed to do. When you're confronted with the fullness of God's law, when you have that confessional mirror, uh, which is like in the back of my um, prayer book here, I think I handed out little pamphlets at one point in time to kind of help you prepare for confession. When you dive into the depths of, let's just say the first commandment, what does it mean to fear, love, and trust in God above all things? Have you put anything above God at all ever? <laughs> then you fail, right? You fail. You did not use it as a guide like you ought to, and then it becomes a mirror, right? I always kind of see the mirror as two harkening back to the speck in your eye versus mm. the, the speck in someone else's eye versus the plank in your eye. That's right. Yeah, that's exactly so, right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah because we can always be holier than thou. Yeah, 
That's, that's exactly right. We should always be willing uh, to use the law first and foremost against ourselves to self-evaluate. Uh, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't go to a brother when they're sinning and call them to repentance, right? Out of love so that they would see, like, because if, if a guy's got a log in their eye, you should tell them, right? <laughs> uh, how they could miss it, I don't know, but sometimes people need to be told, right? Uh, for their own good. So, okay, any, any thoughts on this? Um, again, we could, we could go... What does he say? He, he does say, though, on page 62, this is why I also think that the mirror is very compelling, um, because it is the chief, what does he say, um, it is the uh, chief and most important function of the law, right? It is the most important because uh, it gets us to understand where we stand before God. Okay. It shows us our sin. All right. How about number six? Pretty good today. Number six: the discussion of free will on page sixty-six and following. Right. Um, the discussion of free will is critical to our understanding of our relationship to God. Now, this is the question: Do we have free will? Or not? Because that comes up even in these little discussions amongst Lutherans. Say, well, he gave us free free will, freedom to choose. But let's dive into that. Do we really have free will? And if we do, how? And vice versa. What do you think? Yes, we have free will. Any one of us can walk out the door and never come back. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Okay. We're not puppets. Right. Yeah, so, like I said before, God is not going to tell you exactly which which way you should take the church, you know, whether or not you should stop at a stop sign. You know, probably should do that. Um, but it's one of those things of, like, you have free will, like he says in the book, about the things that are below. Or as I like to say, the horizontal reality of things, right? You have free will in uh, deciding whether or not you're going to give, you know, in the collection plate, you, you have the free will to decide whether or not, you know, how much you're going to give, if you are going to give. You know, those, you can get down to the minutia on this. But what you do not have the free will Four is those things that are above, the vertical reality of things. Uh, that's the things of salvation, right? So, you own, so in that sense, you only have the free will to reject and not to accept. You see what I mean? Yeah. Okay. Now... Is that that we, yeah. have, that we know our sins? What's that? That we have a conscience that we know our sins? Yeah. Well, it's, that's the thing, is that um, if we I mean, know... Even the sinner knows the sins. Right. If we know our sins, it depends on... I mean, there's more to the equation than just that, too, right? How do we know about our salvation? Is that all up to us? You know? That's the Holy Spirit. Yeah, it's the Holy Spirit who does these things, right? 
So we do not have free will in matters of salvation, but we have free will in matters of civil um, duties and um, the interactions that we have amongst people. See what I mean? And I think that that's actually been a thing that has infected even the Lutheran church to some degree, um, even if it's on a very minor level, that because we, because people, sadly, I, I am envious of the ability of communication for like, you know, uh, Charles Stanley, Billy Graham, all these guys who have these TV shows and things that are very accessible to people because they get the word out, Right. But because they get the word out, you know, some, sometimes, you know, you, you may have some people, um, some elderly people or whatever in your church, even though you live stream the service, they don't have a computer, so they can't watch it. So they just turn on the TV and they catch uh, Joel Osteen or they'll catch um, even John Hagee or something like that. And they'll think that's good enough. It's like, well, they talk like this, right? They talk about free will. They talk about that you have the free will to choose, and it infects you on some level because it kind of makes sense, right? It makes sense to the sinful flesh that we would be able to do these things for ourselves. But Scripture doesn't talk that way, right? Um, scripture talks about, you know, St. Paul uh, quotes the Psalms and saying, you know, no one is good, no, not one, right? And he also says in 1 Corinthians, you know, like, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. That is, the Holy Spirit has to give you the ability to see these things, right? So God's will is that we all are saved. That's right. So and, the only way not to be saved is to reject. That's exactly right. right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, free will has its consequences. Yeah. <laughs> Or the bondage of the will has its consequences, right? And that's that seminal work of the, the, the communication between Martin Luther and Erasmus. That Erasmus, like he talks about in the book, um, was a contemporary, and he was a humanist, and he said, you know, God wouldn't just give us these things unless we could do them. He would be a tyrant if that was the case, right? And what does he say? Um, where does he say that? Uh Oh, yeah, that's right. On page 65, um, Erasmus used this argument against Luther. Uh, he says that because there is a law, then there must be, be the freedom and power to keep the law, that God would not command what we could not do, right? Um, he says they were fighting about freedom or bondage of man's will. If we were not free to keep the law, um, if we were not free to keep the law, this is what... Um, Desiderius Erasmus says, you know, that then, then God would be a cruel tyrant to demand of us things that we cannot do and punish us for not doing them. We must then be free to keep the law. The law of God, as he argued, proves our goodness or at least our ability to do good. And Luther's response, I'm simplifying, he has to because Luther was very verbose, right? You should read what the Bible says. <laughs> you should read what the Bible says about the law, right? Paul writes to the Romans, through the law comes knowledge of sin, Romans 3.20. The law shows our sin. The law reveals God's wrath. The law is a, di a di diagnostic that teaches us the truth that we would otherwise never know. We are sick, fallen, dead, in trespasses and sins. We are children of wrath deserving of hell. Right? 
So, again, we, we, we are bound by our wills when it comes to the matter of salvation. Yeah. I'm thinking like 50, 60 years ago, mm -hmm. there was, within the Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod, there mm -hmm. was a lot of discussion about this and a lot of um, teachings. And I think it, a lot of it was a reaction to revivalism sure. and uh, the uh, uh, revivals that were taking place in 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 the culture around. Yes. And you can make a decision, come forward, and all of a sudden, uh, LCMS was discussing it and reacting to it. Yes. Yeah. I think that's kind of settled down. Yeah. We got bigger fish to fry right now. So yeah. <laughs> um, no, yeah, it's it's settled down a little bit. I think we're also kind of seeing. I think rightfully so on some level, some sort of um, ecumenism where we can like we'll work with other churches. Obviously, the Baptists and Methodists and whoever would join us on things like you know the right to life, right. Stopping abortion and things like that, serve it like serving the community in that way, but we're not, but we're not going to get involved in like any sort of ecumenical services or things like that to to say that we agree with them on all these points of doctrine because we don't, you know. Um, but we should we should join together where we can and, and politely, if possible, <laughs> disagree where we ought, right? Um, so. This leads to something very interesting, though. So if, if, our, if our sin, you know, if we are bound in our sins by ourselves, uh, and I really like how he says things like, you know, um, well, okay, so he was, Pastor Wolf Mueller was in Colorado, right? And he was in, he was in that community, he was in, um, Pastor of Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. And that's where they had that horrible shooting in the movie theater during, I guess, the Batman movie. And so he was there, and that affected the people at his church for sure. And so he uses that on page 69, where he talks about that, that a dozen people were murdered and 70 more were wounded. The scene was horrific, the loss devastating, and... Uh, and, and the town was mourning for months. This is a terrible crime. Now imagine a conversation with the shooter. I, I don't think this actually happened, but just, just imagine this guy did this hein, heinous thing. Yeah, he was pretty crazy, but yeah. it's one of those things. Did you shoot these people? Yes, I did, and it was wrong. So you acknowledge you've done wrong. What punishment do you think you deserve? Yeah, it was a really bad thing to do, and I think I should have five or six hours of community services punishment. Right? When you hear what he thinks his punishment should be, you realize that this man has no idea how bad he is. He has no concept of how horrible his crime was, right? And this kind of reminds me, he, he, he also talks about, you know, if a person, like, he was at the seminary and he was hanging out in a friend's apartment and they heard a crash and they went and checked it out and this guy was laying under his motorcycle and they asked him, are you okay? And he goes, I don't know, I can't feel my legs. He had broken his neck. But because he had broken his neck, he couldn't tell if he was hurt or not, you know? And it's kind of the same thing of, like, um, I had a friend who, was a, uh, who, who is a, a firefighter. I think he's, like, a captain now. But 
he has all these stories. Of course, you have to when, <laughs> when you're a firefighter. And he's he was a paramedic as well. But he said that one time they were in Sugarland, uh, Texas, and and, and they were um, this guy got drunk, so drunk that he ran up into the parking structure of the the place that they were at or whatever. He ran up in the parking garage and the cops chased him up there and he was on the second level, really tall. And uh, to get away from the cops, he jumped, thinking that he would be okay. And when he landed on the pavement, he broke both of his legs and broke both of his femurs and his femoral arteries were bleeding. And he was there, you know, cussing him out and, and not letting anyone get near him. And the paramedics just walk up to him very calm. It's like, hey, buddy, how's it going? And he's just cussing him out, you know, and, and they go, let me just tell you this real quick. If we do not get a tourniquet on your legs, you will bleed out and die. And we need to get the IV, uh, we need to get the IV um, connected to you so that we can make sure that you're not going to die. Because if, but we won't do that unless you want us to, right? Because he's conscious, he's conscious. And he's customized like, okay, then you're going to bleed out and die. And then he just goes, and he holds out his arm, right? For them to put the IV in and, get, and do everything that they need to do. But he wouldn't have known that unless they told him, right? He wouldn't have known. He was so far gone. He was so drunk and so far gone that he had no idea how badly hurt he really was, right? And that's how we are. Whether we like to admit it or not, it's kind of like Tim was saying with, you know, Scripture, being the way that it is, it is the truth, whether you would acknowledge it or not. So the best thing to do would be to acknowledge it, right? Yeah. One of the most profound statements in this chapter was on page 64 in the second paragraph. It really hit home to me. Um, Which paragraph, Kim? Second paragraph. One of the indicators, that one, one of the indicators of the depth of our fall is that we do not know how bad we are. We are so broken that we cannot feel our brokenness. Sin has corrupted us so profoundly that we don't know how sinful we are. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, is, it is a corruption of our flesh. And yeah, when you live for so long, doing whatever you want to do, I mean, you wind up being and doing things that are right in your own eyes. And you have no idea what's right and wrong. You have no idea how bad you really are. Yeah, it's true. Particularly um, when you have no adults anymore who are willing to speak. Say that again? What's that? Particularly when we have no adults anymore who are willing to say that. Yeah. yeah. So I live, in a, I live in a culture in Iowa, which is everywhere, where <laughs> middle-aged people, no one can be ashamed, no one can be uh, shocked, because no, particularly male adults, talk to people anymore. Yeah. They just mm -hmm. avoid it. They don't say anything. They don't want to offend anybody. Yeah. They don't want to get. They don't want to stir the water. And so, young people, middle-aged people, go around <coughs> crazy living, and we all act like it's not happening. Mm -hmm. yeah. Turn a blind eye. We do. Yep. And why are we surprised that it looks like it does? Right. Um, I think I think Johann Gerhard said something about that when he says that we are so we are so concerned when somebody dies physically but we are so uncaring when someone is dying spiritually Amen. you know that that i will mourn the death of somebody 
the physical death of somebody, even if they're a Christian. Meanwhile, you know, it, at some on some level, I should say to myself, you know what? Death is the best thing that could have happened for them as a Christian because they are now free from this life of sin, of bondage of sin and death. They are in the presence of their Savior, and that's a good thing. But then when someone is doing something that will kill them spiritually, I just turn a blind eye, and in some ways I engage in it with them. They don't speak up, you know? I'm a culprit in their sin by not saying anything when I know that they're doing something wrong. Yeah, it's, it's, it's something I think that we in our culture need to be very well aware of and willing to speak out. And I think you're starting... I pray that we're going to start seeing that more and more, especially pastors speaking out about these things, because that's actually what we need. <laughs> you know, we talked about on Sunday uh, with uh, raising up children, that what children need are boundaries. Um, and, and, and when they don't have boundaries, they run amok and they are depressed. They are depressed because they don't know right and wrong. They don't know how to do things right, because no one ever told them how to do it. And they yeah. don't feel loved. And there's no love there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Desire boundaries. They yeah. They, de- they, may, they may not well, they, that, but they desire They, they need them, and on some level they desire them. They, they may not like the consequences of going over the boundaries, but... Oh, wow. Um, yeah, it's too bad. <laughs> I finally, finally had to um, reprimand Charlotte the other day because she kept playing with the dog's food. Ugh. But I simply just kind of smacked her hand. And she went for it again. I smacked her hand again. Not hard. Just a little tap. And she got upset and she went into the corner and she cried. And so I let her cry for a few minutes. And I said, come here, honey. And Picto was like, you shouldn't have done that. And you need to stop doing that. Daddy loves you. That's why I did it. And she doesn't understand these things. But, I, you know, might as well start soon. And, well, on some level she does. She understands me calling her over and picking her up and talking to her softly. And yeah. saying, I forgive you for that. And now she doesn't go to the dog food, so... Actions speak louder than That's true. But that's all connected to the thing of that when people are doing something wrong, we as Christians, especially fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, ought to be able to say, hey, this isn't right. You, know, you shouldn't be doing these things. And I'm not telling you this because I think I'm better than you. I'm telling you this because, well, that's not what God desires for your life. And on top of that, if you keep doing that, you don't even know the consequences that could come. So just, yeah. it's, it's one of those things we should be more bold in professing the truth and let, this, let the truth speak for itself. Yeah, and call it what it is. It's persecution now. It's nothing like the persecuted church in other lands, but it is a form of persecution that we are afraid to speak up. We're, we're more afraid of our silly neighbor than we are of God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's true. Exactly. Rather than standing up, we're more afraid of what that bonehead will say than what God will say because we didn't. It's the guy that's next to you. Not, yeah, no. Yeah, no, we're more afraid. I'm living in Iowa. Yeah. <laughs> We've talked to you for a few minutes first. Yeah. <laughs> it might be your closest to South Dakota. <laughs> well, it's kind of funny, but like like you said, and, and we keep keep going here, but last... Last thing I'll say is like, yeah, there's, there's, there's a professor at the Fort Wayne Seminary, Dr. David Scare, and he was a pastor in Iowa, so I mean, he can say these things, I guess, but he calls like things like the old Iowa trick, you know, um, and, and one of the things, like the best example of an old Iowa trick, which, like you said, it's everywhere, 
is uh, a friend of mine who is a pastor in Iowa, and he was raised in Iowa and everything like that. Uh, he, he said that his grandfather would say, you know, for a man, when you see a pretty woman walk by, look once and don't look away, because if you look twice, it's a sin. <laughs> the old Iowa trick, you know? <laughs> Makes total sense. Yeah, total sense. Yeah. Stop it, all right? Yeah. That's me. That's me being a good brother and saying, stop doing that. Right? Oh, my goodness. I don't care what you think. I'm more afraid of David's scared than I am of you. That's, you should be, yeah. Even though he's, what, 86, you should be scared of him. So that, would, that was another joke. All the students are afraid of David Scare when he goes up and, and he like picks up when like kids go up to him and he just picks them up and he's holding them and everything like that. But grown men are fearful. It's really funny. Uh, yeah. Okay. So back on track here. Last question. And we'll stop here. Right. Obviously. Um, when we see Jesus on the cross, we see what we deserve. So what does Jesus's suffering and death say about our sin? I mean, where do you begin, first of all? But how would you begin? Horrific. It was a horrific death. Yeah. That our sin needed to be paid for. I mean, it, it was such a high cost, right? That movie, um, five years ago or something <clears throat> like that, uh, The Crucifixion of Christ, and... Who, I've forgotten who did it and everything. It was so graphic. It oh, was... The Passion of the Christ? Yes. That was a while ago. Yeah. Mel Gibson's film? Yeah. Yes, yeah. 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 That's what I thought of when, when I... What does that say, say about our sin? That's <laughs> what we Well, it's kind of funny because, you know, you'll see, like, crucifixes and things, and people will say, that's graphic, that's horrible. You know, you'll see, like, a crucifix like this one. And you'd be like, that's horrible. He's nailed to a cross and he's bleeding out of his side. It's like, uh, there are some crucifixes that probably show closer to what really it was, where it's like the body of Jesus on the cross is just covered. He's basically just red lashes all over his body bleeding. Like he's just all red from his blood. Like that's probably closer to what it was like. This is kind of a, a nice sanitized version. Uh, but... It's still, it was, it's, it's a horrific thing, right? Our sin is horrific, but that's the interesting thing. What does he say about um, the, that on the cross, we see God's wrath revealed for sin, right? That the mystery of the cross is that simultaneously, as you see the wrath of God for sin in this world, you also see, Salvation, one for that sin, one for you, for the forgiveness of your sins. That it is both the greatest law that could ever be spoken and the greatest gospel that could ever be proclaimed, right? Simultaneously. I mean, it's kind of amazing. Um, it's very amazing, not kind of. It's very amazing that God would reveal himself in such a way to show that wrath for sin is so horrific that Jesus had to not just be crucified, but flogged and torn apart, right? I mean, it's just, it's just beyond comprehension, at least it should be, uh, the mystery of the cross. 
Yeah, how are you going to say the, something? The, the worst part of it had to, for Jesus had to be, oh, I can hardly say it, when God turned away from him. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, when he was forsaken, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, that he was stricken, smitten, and afflicted for our sakes, right? By his stripes we are healed, that we are not forsaken because he was for that time, right? Um, so that is to say, back to the point, that when American Christianity is weak on sin, if we ever find ourselves weak on our understanding of sin, I mean, that's, that's a big reason why crucifixes are a staple in Christianity, or at least they should be a staple in Christianity because it reminds us of what the cost for our sin really was and how high of a, a, a price Christ had to pay for us, right? But he says, in his mercy, God has, God has not revealed the fullness of his wrath without also revealing the abundance of his grace. So we'll end on that note because where's the comfort? It's right there. It's on the cross, right? In the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. That's where it is. Any any closing thoughts or comments before we before we end for the day? Yeah, it's nice to, to have a Bible study amongst the common folk, even down here in Texas. Yeah. Up in Iowa. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That is that is the nice thing about, or at least that should be the nice thing about being in a, a church body like the Missouri Synod, that you should be able to go anywhere and have a very similar experience no matter where you go. Don't go to Lafayette. <laughs> <laughs> I'll go to. I'll, I'll go to Gretna because I know a good pastor that's over there. Yeah. yeah. As John says, we travel, and this is as long as we've been in the church for a long time. You get to see a lot of different things traveling. Yeah. But we're all of one mind, basically. We should be. Yeah. Which is pretty neat. Yeah. yeah we should be. Alrighty. Well, uh, how about before we end it for today, let's, let's do as we usually do, and we'll uh, close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever.